Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you this Lord today. I am very, very excited to to deliver this message to you. I've been very anxious to, to do so, and uh, I, I hope that you will be as blessed as I was preparing it. Um, as you know, we've been going through the book of John, a, a glorious book, and the last couple of weeks have have been something special, uh, something special, especially being in John 17. And we've seen Christ in, in a way that, that John hasn't portrayed him um, as the glorious Messiah who cares for his sheep, um, who, who gives his sheep into the Father's hands, and who was going to the cross, um, who will be slain, but he will ultimately conquer. So, <clears throat> let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here together by your grace. Be with your people. Give them eyes and ears and hearts to see and hear and receive your word. And give me clarity, Holy Spirit. Use me for the Father's glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. <clears throat> I want you to imagine yourself living over 2,000 years ago as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So imagine yourself living over 2,000 years ago as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you can put yourself in their shoes at these moments, uh, imagine you being there at Jesus' triumphal entry. Everyone remember that? Uh, You see the palm branches waving. You hear the people yelling, Hosanna. Blesses is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We've heard Jesus saying this whole time that his time of glorification is at hand. Remember John in uh, chapter 12, verse 23, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we know that. We know that when Jesus says he's going to be glorified, it means crucified. We know that. Yet, imagine you didn't know that. Because that's not what those crowds heard. And that's not how those disciples interpreted that. They didn't see glorification as meaning death or or crucifixion. When those crowds heard that the hour has come... For the Son of Man, that title Son of Man, they immediately think of Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And there he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And, and this, is where, this is where they got excited. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. They are thinking of a kingdom being established. And when they hear glorified, they're, king, they're thinking of a conquering Messiah. Imagine you being there, and in your mind you're thinking... Everything that we've been waiting for is about to happen. All the promises that were given to Israel about a king who would come from the line of David and and conquer with a sword, he's here. He's come in the flesh. Jesus will take his rightful throne as the king of the Jews and and usher in the kingdom. Remember what else Jesus said in John 12, 31? Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world, will be casted out. And again, we know that as Christ talking about Satan. But when you hear those words in that context, in this historical setting, you're thinking, 
He's about to drive out that Roman governor who's over us. He's about to drive out Rome, the, the one who's been suppressing us for so long. Jesus will overthrow Rome and, and pick up where King David left off. If you were a disciple at this time, the, the trajectory couldn't have looked more promising. You were on an emotional high. Now imagine you are at the Last Supper in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. That you are sitting there preparing yourself to feast with Christ as the Passover draws near. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet. That's strange. And then he says, one of you will betray me. The, the tension and confusion in the room is beginning to get thick. You're questioning if it's the one who's sitting next to you. Maybe it's Peter. Maybe it's John. You're questioning if the betrayer is you. And then you see Judas arise from the table and leave. You're even more confused. Now the questions begin to formulate in your mind. The one who you've been following this whole time, for the past three years, the one you've dropped everything for and given your whole life to, he is now leaving. And where he's going, you can't come with him at the moment. What would you feel then? You go from being at a state of, of really excited and really happy to your heart sinks down into your stomach. Tears begin to stream down your face. Jesus comforts you with words such as, Your sorrow will return to joy. That He will not leave us as orphans, but He will come back for us. He tells us that another comforter, a, a helper will come and He will teach us all things. He will remind us of Christ and at last He tells us to take heart because He has overcome the world. And then with our heavy hearts... Jesus takes us to the side. And with his hand, he walks us up to the Holy of Holies. And there we have a privilege to have a front row seat to witness the communion between the Father and the Son of God. There we are in all of the rich truths our Lord was praying for his and our behalf, as well as on the behalf of those who will believe in his name. It's a grand and glorious prayer. We see the intimacy that the Son has had with the Father. Yeah. Now, imagine our Lord ending that prayer. Imagine us now having to come down from that holy mountain. You went from being really excited to really sorrowful to being in the presence of the Father and the Son. You are now leaving that holy mountain. And imagine you now leaving that upper room. And what will transpire in the next few hours will turn everything that you've ever imagined about our Lord upside down. Your worst fears are about to come true. And, and everything our Lord predict, uh, predicted is about to come to pass. Friends, we now enter a new section through our study of John. It's a section that we've all been waiting for. Jesus will now make his way to the cross. And that journey starts in John chapter 18. Let's stand if you will. John chapter 18. If you have a Bible, it will really help you out this morning. John chapter 18. The betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. 
This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high, servant, high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You may be seated. This Lord's Day, I have three points I would like for you to consider. Three points. Number one, the setting. Number two, the interrogation. And number three, the surrender. Number one, the setting. Number two, the interrogation. And number three, the setting. Or, the surrender. A lot of S's. Let's first look at the setting. The setting. Look, if you will, back at verses 1 through 3. When Jesus has spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Currently in our walk through John, we find ourselves in the celebration known as the Passover. The Passover. Uh, The Passover celebrated God's deliverance of Israel out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt. The story of the Exodus, or in the story of the Exodus, the last plague was the death of the firstborn in every family in Egypt. If you uh, were a kid, and if you're like me, you watched Prince of Egypt, you know this scene very well. God told the people of Israel to kill a spotless lamb and put its blood on the doorpost and on the cross piece of their homes. So they would spray the blood over the doorpost and the cross piece of the homes. When the angel of death came to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, he would see the blood and he would pass over the house. When the firstborn were killed, the Pharaoh sent Israel out of Egypt, and God ultimately delivered them. So the celebration of the Passover commemorated a sacrificial lamb whose blood enabled Israel to escape the judgment of God. Millions of people would come to Jerusalem to have their lambs ritually slain in the temple. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, tells us that over, and listen to this, over a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered at Passover. Over a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered at Passover. And there were probably two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the celebration. So we're talking about a massive amount of people and a massive amount of lambs that are slain. The amount of slaughter and the blood was so much that it caused a river of blood to run down the back of the temple and down the slope of the Kidron Valley. So in verse 1, when the Bible says he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, I want you to imagine this. Jesus is seeing all that blood running down the temple. He sees that blood. He might even have to cross over all that blood. Imagine that sight. Millions upon millions of lambs slaughtered for millions of people. Gallons upon gallons of blood filled the temple and the streets. Yet all combined couldn't take away one sin. And our Lord is seeing all that. For the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 verse 3 and 4, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those lambs and goats were empty sacrifices. We have the one, and then we have here, the one who sees all that blood, who knows the purpose of Passover, who knows why millions upon millions have come to Jerusalem and brought their lambs with them. He comes walking, the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb. He comes walking across the Kidron, And in a few hours, he will be slaughtered as a once-for-all sacrifice. Friends, let me stop here and let me just say glory be to God for Jesus' sacrifice. An infinite amount of blood couldn't have saved one person, yet one drop of blood from our Lord saved an infinite amount of people. 
glory be to God. That we don't have to, slay, we don't have to bring animals to the altar anymore. We put our faith in the perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. Verse 1 again, when Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, the setting for what's about to take place is a garden. And I want you to see all of this. It's a garden. Now, the three other Gospels give their account of where this betrayal and arrest take place. Matthew and Mark call it Gethsemane. Uh, Luke says Jesus and his disciples entered the Mount of Olives. Uh, Contradiction? No. Uh, To simplify the confusion, Gethsemane is located at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So Gethsemane is in the Mount of Olives. But I find it interesting, and you have to hear this, I find it interesting that John doesn't tell us the actual location's name like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Isn't that strange? I mean, John was there. Why didn't he just say he went to the Gethsemane? Or they went to the Mount of Olives? But why did he say a garden? Why did he refer to this place as a garden? Because John wants us to see that this is a second garden. And at this second garden, here enters the second Adam. The entrance of Christ into the Garden of Eden at once reminds us of the, of the Garden of Eden. The entrance of Christ into the Garden of Gethsemane at once reminds us of the Garden of Eden. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve talked to Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict at Gethsemane waged by night. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the whole human race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of those who you gave me, I have not lost one. John 18.9 In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, God Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought after Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought after God. In Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden. Christ was led to the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, the sword was drawn, Genesis 3.24. In Gethsemane, the sword was put away, John 18.11. Friends, the contrast between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane are indeed striking. Early church father Augustine said, It is fitting that the blood of the physician should there be poured out where the disease of the sick man first began. One theologian said, The first Adam had everything that was pleasant in the garden, and yet he fell. The second Adam had everything that was painful and trying in the garden of Gethsemane, but was a glorious conqueror. Here we have Christ, the last Adam, the better Adam, entering his garden with his disciples to do what they are so accustomed to doing, and that is pray. John doesn't give us the account of what happened between Christ entering the garden and, and Christ's betrayal of, and his arrest. John doesn't speak of Christ's agony in the garden before his betrayal and arrest. But let me read you what was happening in those hours between Christ entering the garden and Christ's betrayal and arrest. And we see that in Mark 14. Verses 32 and 42. Just, just listen to what's happening here. And, when, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit there while I pray. And he took took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, If it were possible, the hour might pass from me. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found sleeping, and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Keep and pray, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the words, the same words. And again, he, he found them asleep, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. That's what's happening yes. in the moments of Christ right now. In the moments of these disciples. That is what's happening between Christ's arrival in the garden till his betrayal and the rest. The agonizing prayers of our Lord as he pleads with the Father to remove the task that he's about to accomplish. If there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet, yet not my will, but your will be done. Yes. Yes. Now back to John 18, yes. verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So let's set the stage of what's about to happen. Jesus and his disciples have now entered the Garden of Gethsemane. It was dark into the night. And while they're at the garden, Jesus goes off to pray. And while this is all happening, Judas along with the Jewish leaders, are devising a plan to capture Jesus. While they're out the garden praying, Judas is somewhere else, giving these Jewish leaders the blueprints of how to capture Jesus, of where to capture Jesus. Judas is setting in motion what Jesus said to him back in John thirteen twenty seven: what you are about to do, do quickly. Jesus already knows the evil intentions of Judas. So, at the Last Supper, he dismisses Jews into the night. Fulfilling what was said in Psalms 41.9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Judas, who was once a follower of God, is now an enemy of God. Judas, who was once loyal, is now a traitor. Notice how verse 2 mentions that Judas knew of the place where Jesus would be at. That's very striking that John would even mention something like that. It's very significant because it shows the deep, hard heart of Judas. It shows the heart of, the, the, the heart of Judas must have been so desperately hard and so desperately full of evil and sin. Judas knew of that garden where Jesus would be at. The garden of Gethsemane was a quiet spot to which Jesus frequently retired with his apostles. In Luke 21:37, we read, And in the daytime, he was, he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. In Luke 29, 22:39, we read, And he came out and went, as it was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. This was Christ's place for devotion, a place where many precious communications had passed between him and his disciples. Imagine the rich theology and teachings that Jesus heard in that garden. Imagine the deep prayers that Jesus heard from our Lord in that garden. Imagine the rich fellowship Judas had with his disciples and Jesus in that garden. Judas threw all that away. He threw all of that spiritual knowledge away and replaced it with his wicked intentions. The garden to Judas was not a place of spiritual refreshment but rather the place where Jesus will be betrayed. Friends, listen to me now, please. Let Jesus' betrayal be a reminder and a lesson to us all. We can sit and eat bread with Jesus. We can sit and drink wine with Jesus. We can sit under teachings of Jesus, yet still be a traitor of Jesus. We can say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm one of Jesus' followers. Yet our wicked motives and selfish desires can easily sway us away from the faith, like it did Judas. Judas sold Jesus out. Friends, it's not what you confess with your mouth. It's not only that, but it's what you confess and what you believe in your heart. Guard yourself, friends, because you too can fall, just like Judas. 
take those words as warnings as well as wisdom. Verse 3. Look, if you will, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So here we have Judas. Bring with him a band of soldiers. Now when John says a band of soldiers, that gives us an indication of how many people came out on this occasion. Because that word band could also be rendered a cohort. A Roman cohort. And a Roman cohort is a tenth part of a legion. A legion of Roman soldiers is between 3,000 and 6,000 men. So probably, Judas round up the game, and there were 300 to 600 soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. Not no 12 soldiers, not no 50 soldiers, 300 plus soldiers. That's quite a lot of men to arrest just one man. Especially a man who's not known to carry any weapons. But the reason for this amount of soldiers is because this isn't the first time the Jewish leaders have tried to capture Jesus. In John 7, the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to arrest Jesus. Verse 45 tells us, Then the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why do you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke the way this man does. These officers gave up their attempt to arrest Jesus because no one has ever spoke the way Jesus has. They tried to stone him in John 8. Jesus slips away. Again in John 10, they attempt to arrest him, and again, Jesus escapes their hands. So the success rate of capturing Jesus is at zero. Until now. The stage is now set. The setting is now set. Rejecting the light of this world, here Judas... And there's this band of soldiers come bearing their own light with weapons in their hands and hatred in their hearts. They march to the garden to arrest Jesus. But little did they know, Jesus comes marching for them. Let's look at the second point, the interrogation. The interrogation. Look at verse 4, if you will. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, to them, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Again, imagine you're a disciple of Christ at this moment. This night was supposed to be a regular time of prayer. And then all of a sudden, you're interrupted with soldiers who are carrying weapons. Officers and and chief priests. And standing with them is your former brother, Judas. Now imagine Jesus at this moment. He has just poured out his soul in prayer. Luke tells us that Christ's soul was so troubled that he began to sweat drops of blood. He's been asking the Father if there was any way redemption could be accomplished. I believe, other than those agonizing, or other, other than his time on the cross, Gethsemane might have been the lowest point in Jesus' earthly life. He was so low at that moment. The Bible even tells us that an angel came to just comfort him. Jesus was brought so low during that prayer in Gethsemane. But Jesus knows the time to be sorrowful is over. The time for the sweating of drops of blood is over. Jesus knows that there is no other way for redemption of his people to be accomplished. There is no other spotless lamb other than him that could be sacrificed. So with his Head down, he charged forward to meet this army of wicked soldiers head on. He grinned his teeth as his face, as Isaiah 50 says, became like a flint and he met this mob of murderers. Jesus and his soldiers thought they were coming after Jesus, but in reality, Jesus was coming after them. He went forward to these soldiers and with Jesus and the soldiers staring at each other face to face, Jesus says to these wicked sinners, Whom do you seek? I don't know about you, but what boldness by our Lord. Jesus rises from the dirt of the ground and asks them, Who are you looking for? And usually, in an interrogation, it's the officers who are the ones who are asking the questions. But here we see the so-called criminal. Jesus asking the questions. And he starts off by telling them, Who do you seek? Who are you looking for? 
No, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't wait to be challenged. Jesus didn't wait to hear the first evil words that they would say. Jesus spoke first. Jesus took the initiative. The soldiers came to seek Jesus, but in reality, Jesus came and sought after them. For this is the way Jesus intended to be glorified. Remember back in John 6.15 when the people so desperately wanted to force Jesus to wear the crown as their king? What did he do? He withdrew and he hid himself. But when it came to force him to the cross, Jesus offered himself. Jesus ran to it. Jesus did not hide himself. Jesus marched forward. Amen. Jesus hid himself from being, crowned, from being crowned king of the Jews. Rather, he embraced that crown of thorns. Jesus asked them, who do you seek? And what do these soldiers say in response? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, judging by that answer, it seems like they didn't even know who Jesus was. I mean, wouldn't you have a mugshot of Jesus somewhere? Shouldn't people describe how Jesus looks like? But they give the standard answer. Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus asked, who do you seek? They didn't say, you. Or when Jesus asked, who do you seek? They didn't simply say, come with us. Rather, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Despite the moon, the full moon that night, despite their lanterns and torches, they couldn't recognize Christ. Their eyes reflected the hearts of every sinner in this world, blind and unaware of the truth. Jesus asked them, who do you seek? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And watch what Jesus says next. Jesus says in verse 5, I am he. I am he. Now, to many of you, you might roll your eyes at that moment. To many of you, you might say, I am he. That's, that's no big deal. That's just a standard answer. I mean, I say I am he when people ask me, hey, is Isaiah there? Or are you Isaiah? Jesus simply said, I am he. But when you study the meaning and the significance of what Jesus said, it changes the whole night. It's simply breathtaking. When Jesus answers, I am he, the officers, soldiers, and Pharisees knew what he was claiming. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. The he is supplied by the English text. There is no word he that is found in the original Greek. So what Jesus is really saying is, I am. I am. What's the significance of that title, I am? I am is the name of God. I am is the name of God. Jesus is once again identifying himself as God. Jesus is identifying himself as the one who spoke to Moses through that burning bush back in Exodus 3.14. And they all knew it. Jesus is showing these band of soldiers that he is more than just Jesus of Nazareth. He is more than just Mary's little boy. He is more than just a carpenter. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is the one who controls and sustains the universe. He is the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. He is the one who spoke to the prophets of old. He is the one who laid the foundations of the earth and set time itself in motion. He is, as Colossians 1 tells us, the son of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all, all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were, have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the, among the dead. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. I'm going to use words from the old, but he is the author and the omega. He is the first and last. He is the beginning and the end. He is God Almighty. No soldiers, officers and Pharisees, and even Judas. He is more than just a carpenter from Nazareth. He is more than just a miracle worker. He is more than just one nutcase who claimed to be God. No, he is God. And he's in the flesh. 
And he's before you. And he's declaring his lordship. Jesus says, I am. Again, what boldness of our Lord. For once again claiming to be God. For acknowledging the very reason why these soldiers came to arrest him in the first place. For blasphemy. For claiming to be God. Did you catch that? Friends, how bold are you? At your workplace, do you shy away from conversations about God with your co-workers? Or when the name of God is mentioned, do you quickly leave the room? Do you find being a Christian more of a burden when it comes to your friendship than others? With others? When your enemies accuse you for your beliefs, do you stand on God's word? Friends, let the boldness of our Lord here in the face of His accusers translate into our very own lives. No, we can never claim to be God, but we can proclaim that Jesus is God. As you know, brothers and sisters, our world is changing for the worse. God is separating the sheep from the goats. Friends, be bold and unashamedly unashamed for Christ. And when you do, watch your enemies. Watch your co-workers. Watch your friends. Watch your accusers. Fall back to the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens here in the garden. Look at verse 6. After Jesus has said, I am, the solemn covenant name for God, read what happens next. This is going to blow your mind. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and they fell to the ground. What a sight that would have been to see. 300 trained war machine soldiers along with temple guards, along with Jesus, draw back and fall to the ground. These were trained animals who would have shown no fear. Yet in the presence, in front of the presence of the great I Am, they stumble and fall. This hearts back to Psalm 9.3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. Another one, Psalm 27.2. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Christ, at this brief moment, he, He wasn't the suffering servant. He, was the lamb. he wasn't the lamb that was to be slain. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes. And when this lion roars, his adversaries fall to the ground. Jesus gives us a picture of what that day will be like when the heavens open up and the rider of the white horse appears who is called faithful in truth. And Revelation 19.15 tells us from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which you strike down the nations. At this night, at this moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus draws his sword and his enemies are strike down. In the darkness of the garden, in the multitude, the great multitude of men, armed with forces and armed with weapons of the flesh, stumble and fall to the ground at the name which is above every name, Jesus Christ. This harks back to the very first chapter of John. Verse 5, remember? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When the light shines, the darkness cannot overcome it. Friends, there is a reason why John's account of the Garden of Gethsemane is so different from the three other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were portraying Jesus as a suffering servant. John is portraying Jesus as the conquering Messiah. So as these men are, are picking themselves up back from the ground, look what Jesus says next. Verse 7, Whom do you seek? Now, I don't know about you, but I like a good laugh. And I find that quite comical. Jesus has just laid them out by His divine power, by the power of His name, and as they are coming back from the ground, he says, so, so who, who do you say you're looking for again? 
Did you notice that these men aren't interrogating Jesus? That he is interrogating them. He's putting them on the hot seat. He asks, who do you seek? Again, verse 7, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Once again, giving us a picture of every sinner in this world. They are so blind to the truth. They still have no idea who they're dealing with. Friends, in light of what we just read, ask yourself this morning, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Can you see yourself fitting in with the soldiers and officers, the ones who came to arrest Jesus? Is that your crew? Do you see Jesus the way these men saw Jesus as a criminal who's a false god? You know, C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus is either one of three things, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Question, friends, which one of those is Jesus to you? Do you simply know Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth? Like these soldiers and officers did? Or do you know him as the great I am? God Almighty. If you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, this might be the most important thing I say to you this whole sermon. All of us one day will meet the great I am. Every single one of us. Friend, if God was to ask you once you reach heaven, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? You might mention all the wonderful things that you did for the community, maybe like Muhammad Ali did. You might say, because I went to church when I could. You might say, because I was simply a good person. Friends, good people doing good deeds don't go to heaven, who are apart from Christ. Don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. Do not be fooled. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, I beg you to repent of your sins. Turn from all of your efforts to save yourself. Turn from your efforts to trying to just be good enough in order to get to heaven. And place all of your hope and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. To my backsliding Christian friend, my lukewarm Christian friends who are here this morning, you are not a Christian. You can't live on both sides of the fence like Judas was for so long. Either You're either standing behind Judas, holding lanterns, torches, and weapons, or you're standing behind Christ, and He alone is your light and your protection. Amen. And if you think it's easy to just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'll follow Christ, the Bible says lepers can't change their spots. The wind blows where it wills. It has to be a sovereign working of God. Repent of your sins, friend. And lastly, please note that if you don't choose Christ, if you do not choose Christ, you will fall to the ground like these 300 plus men. But friend, if you turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ alone, He will stand in your place at the day of judgment and He will protect you like He did His disciples this night in the garden. Which leads us to our last point. The surrender. The surrender. Look at verse 8 if you will. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. Just as Moses stood before the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, on that first Passover night and said, let God people go. Jesus stands before the most powerful army in the world and says the same, let these men go. There are three things that are happening here when Jesus says, so if you seek me, let these men go. Let me just run them by you. Number one, Jesus is acting out what he prayed for back in John seventeen twelve. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. And none has been lost. None has been lost. How are these disciples protected? By Christ revealing himself to these band of mob murderers. The great I am glory shined for that brief moment. And they fell back. And they said, I ain't messing with this dude. Christ is at this moment for one last time, for one last time in his earthly ministry, protecting his disciples. He is sheltering them from harm. 
As we learned back in John 10, the shepherd protects the sheep from the vicious wolves. Christ at this moment is protecting his sheep from the wolves. Christ is acting out what he said. And notice how Christ doesn't say, let my disciples go. He doesn't say, let my followers go. He keeps who they are anonymous. He's protecting their identity. Because if they find out that those men are his disciples, you're coming with us too. The protection of his disciples is top priority in Christ's mind at this moment. That is why verse 9 says, says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus was not trying to save his own skin here at this moment. He was saving his disciples. He could have easily escaped and saved himself, but rather he chose to save his disciples. At one of the darkest moments of Christ's life, he looks past his own sufferings and and what's ahead of him and focuses on his sheep. He focuses on his disciples. Glory be to God. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, please note that Christ's protection is not just limited to these disciples, but, but Christ's protection is for all those who are found in him. All those who are his. And not only will Christ protect you, but He will keep you. He will never lose you. As Charles Spurgeon said, if one dear saint of God had perished, so might all. If one of the covenant ones be lost, then so may all. And then there is no promise, gospel promise is true, but the Bible is a lie. And there is nothing in it worth my acceptance. Friends, if Christ can lose one, then he can lose all. And we can throw this away. Friends, if one regenerate saint can fall away, then all can fall away. But glory be to God. Because none will fall away. That's an amen moment. None will fall away. For Christ tells us in his word in John 10 verse 27, My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And man, I love this verse. I might get this tattooed. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you're double protected. Let's add the Holy Spirit. You're triple protected. In order for Satan to get to you, he must first get past the Holy Spirit. If he gets past the Holy Spirit, he got to get past Christ. Amen. And if he gets past Christ, he got to get past the Father. You are guarded by the Holy Trinity, friend. What glorious news that is. What glorious truth that is. So first we see Christ's protection. The second thing we see that, that Christ is doing is, is here is He's giving His disciples, as well as us, a picture of His substitutionary death. He's giving His disciples, as well as us, a picture of His substitutionary death. What do I mean by that? In just a few hours, Jesus will go to the cross and He will stand in the place of God's people. He will stand in your place. On the cross, the great exchange will take place as the worst about us will lay upon Him and the best about Him will lay upon us. Just as in the Old Testament, while standing in front of a giant, David voluntarily becomes the representative substitute for Israel. Christ will stand in front of a much greater giant as the representative for a substitute for God's people. And just as David conquered Goliath, Jesus will conquer sin, death, and the grave. Friends, if you're a Christian here in this morning, rejoice in the truth that Christ was, is your substitute. Rejoice in the fact that Christ took your place and paid your debt. He bore your sorrows and became a curse for you. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Rejoice, friend, that you no longer live, as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13, according to the flesh. 
Thank you, Pastor, for this great revelation that you don't have to try to earn your way to God. That God has made a way of reconciliation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, rejoice that you are no longer under a slave, under a slavery of sin. That the shackles have been removed. Rejoice because you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Romans 6.18 And lastly, as Paul says so many times in his letters, rejoice because you will no longer see death. You will no longer see death. Death is nothing to those who are in Christ because death has been swallowed up in victory. Us Christians, we look at death in the face and we say the words of Paul, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 Glory be to God. Glory be to God for His substitutionary work on the cross. For paying that debt that you owed. And lastly, what Christ is doing, and he's, He's showing off for one last time His Lordship. He's showing off one last time His Lordship. When Christ said, let these men go, He wasn't giving these soldiers a suggestion. He's giving these soldiers a command. Christ is commanding these bloodthirsty sinners to let these men go. Here I am. Take me. But I charge you not to meddle with them. Touch not my anointed. He speaks as a conqueror. For such he was. For he has thrown them to the ground by the words of his lips. They are about to tie his hands, but before doing, he first ties theirs. Commentary by A.W. Pink. Christ knew what he was doing at this very moment when he said, let these people go. He was teaching his disciples and he was teaching us a lesson. But one of his disciples didn't catch the message. One of his disciples was more confused than anyone that night. It's always that one disciple that chooses to just be the oddball. He chooses just to speak up. He chooses just to act out his emotions. So look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having drawn a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's ear and cut his right ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter's response to the situation was probably our response. To fight fire with fire. To fight sword with swords. So he takes matters into his own hand. And he wasn't aiming for that servant's ear. Let me tell you what. He was aiming for that head. And he just got that ear off. Peter hasn't quite understood what our Lord has been teaching him leading up to these moments. Peter was unaware of God's purpose. Peter here on one hand shows great zeal and love for our Lord. By willing to go toe-to-toe with 300 plus armed soldiers. He's willing to put his life down on the line for his beloved king. But on the other hand, Peter shows once again his unwillingness to submit to God's purpose. Peter didn't want his leader to die. Back in Matthew 16, when Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and to be killed and rise on the third day, Peter took offense to that. Peter rejected the Lord's purpose. Here what Peter says... Peter took him aside. He says, Lord, let me talk to you for a minute. And he began to rebuke him, saying, far be, it from, far, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You ain't going to Jerusalem and dying. No, that's not how this works. But he turned Christ and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for me. For you are setting your mind on the things of God. On th- you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was thinking man-centered. Peter thought by drawing his sword, Jesus and his disciples could be free. Not knowing that true freedom will come. True freedom will be given in just a few hours on the cross. 
Yes, we should praise Peter for his bravery, but we should also shame him for his judgment call. We might say, Peter showed that he was fearless for our Lord, something that we all should strive to be. Yet just in a few hours, Peter, but three times, denied the very one whom he promised he would protect. What John doesn't tell us is what Luke tells us. And that is when, when Peter swipe off that ear, Jesus touches the ear of the servant and he heals him. Now whether Jesus picked up the ear or whether he just placed his hand there and gave him a new ear, the fact of the matter is he healed him. That indeed would be the last of Jesus' miracles during his earthly ministry. And what a fitting one it is. Jesus heals one of his enemies. Just like in a few hours, Jesus will go to the cross and die for his enemies. The final verse, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus rebukes Peter and commands him to put his sword away. Friend, the only sword which the Christian is ever justified as using is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Christ proposes a question to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What powerful, remarkable words by our Lord. Get this, he has just went from sweating drops of blood, agonizing over that awful cup. Now he's embracing it. And that question, the glories of Christ are on full display. And they have been on full display for these entire 11 verses. He declared himself the great I am, and his enemies fall to the ground. He gives the word of command, and his disciples depart unmolested. Now he bows before the will of the Father and receives that awful cup of suffering. On the cross, Christ will drink that foaming wine that God pours out on the wicked as Psalms 75.8 describes. On the cross, Christ will drink that wine of God's anger as Revelation 14.10 details. On the cross, Christ will drink of that cup of wrath that was intended for you, Christian. That was going to be poured out for you, Christian. Christ, on this night, dismisses his disciples from being captured. And in a few hours, he will go to the cross, absorb and exhaust the wrath of God. He will nail your sin to the cross, be buried and rise on the third day, ascend to the right hand of the Father, all in order to dismiss you from eternity in hell. Christ dismisses his disciples this night. And the broader picture, he dismisses us from hell. Friends, what can we take away from these 11 verses? What is the overarching theme that St. John is trying to capture? Well, I think it's said in verse 4. Look, if you will. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Friends, what John is saying is God's in control. If we could imagine once again that night, how confused and sorrowful we would have been as Christ's disciples, yet God was in control. That night was dark and Satan was roaming like a lion, yet God was in control. We will never experience exactly what Christ experienced that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. We will never feel the agony and the troubled soul of our Lord that night. To be betrayed and arrested, knowing what's, what's ahead of him. Right. We will never know what Christ felt. Yet, we do know somewhat of what a Garden of Gethsemane feels like. We don't know it to the extent the way Christ knew it, but we've all been through a Garden of Gethsemane at one point of our lives. We've all had a troubled soul. We've all had weary hearts. But brothers and sisters, in those hard times, in those hardships, make no mistake, as Christ was that night, Christ now is in control. Despite outward appearances, your Savior is in control. Despite the thick fog and pitch black darkness, King Jesus is on his throne. Just as Christ was in control of every single detail of that night, 
in Gethsemane. Jesus is in control of your days and nights in Gethsemane. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they will comfort me. Psalm 23, 4. Friends, Christ is in control of all. He is sovereign. On this night in the Garden of Gethsemane, He chose the setting. He interrogated the soldiers and officers and He voluntarily suffered his, surrendered His life. Amen. And in the coming hours, Jesus will be arrested, He will be tried, and He will be crucified. Yes. But we know the end of the story. And thank God that's not the end of the story. Amen. Make no mistake about it, friends. The cross was not by accident. The cross was not plan B or plan C. The cross was purposely designed by God. He will go to the cross. He will die, but He will conquer. Jesus will rise from the dead. Friends, after the thorns, there will be a crown. And after the cross, there will be a throne. Friends, I'm going to say it the way I was taught when I was a little boy. There was no one like Jesus. No one ever spoke like Jesus. No one ever came and did the miracles and works like Jesus. No one ever lived a perfect life like Jesus. Perfect supremacy, yet perfect subjection. Sovereign, yet servant. The lion, let the lamb. And because of his submission to the Father through his entire life, and especially this night in Gethsemane, God has given him the name which is above every name. Jesus Christ. Let's stand.